So 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 4. John writes this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it. That life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's go before the Lord again. Heavenly Father, as we begin to dive into this book of 1 John, as we consider over the next few weeks what it looks like to live the true Christian life, I pray that you would give us grace, that we would walk faithfully before you, trusting you, believing in you, holding fast to you, making much of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. Well, good morning. Again, Newbreed, I'm excited to be, to be back with you this week. Uh, I was thankful for Pastor Lance last week bringing us uh, a word from Psalm 42 about soul satisfaction for the suffering saint. Did I get that right, brother? Soul satisfaction for the suffering saint. It was a good word. I was thankful for the opportunity, honestly, to listen at home. Uh, it was a double blessing for me. I got to sit under uh, the Word of God being preached, but I also had the opportunity to allow my wife to come and worship uh, on her own, uh, which some of you wives and mothers might like that as well, but uh, I've got some here who are, who are some moms getting a break in here. Uh, you know, nine times out of ten, when, uh, when, when we come to church, you know, Aaliyah's getting the kids ready, she's getting them out the door, she's, she's holding it down while I'm working in here, and then during the service, especially during COVID with kiddos here, we're not doing new breed kids, she's holding it down, and so it's a blessing for me to be able to serve her and let her just come and worship and listen, and the girls and I stayed at home. I was going to say the girls and I listened, but that wouldn't be true. I listened. I don't know what they did, uh, but they were safe and in the house, uh, so I'm excited to be back with you. I would, I would ask you all, uh, not to go into too much detail, but just to keep me in your prayers. Uh, I'm a little out of it this morning, struggling a little bit. Some of you all know this. Spent a little bit of time in the ER this week, um, some residual effects of COVID, and they found that my heart's a little bit swollen, um, so I've got a bunch of medicines that I'm taking, and it'll get it all under wraps. So uh, it was a little late to try to call an audible, and I know that we have capable pastors, but I still wanted to jump in and, and preach First John, so I just ask you to to keep me in your prayers, uh, Lord willing, I'll be fine. And, you know, Dr. Sperry, I know you're listening. And so I promise I'll heed your advice and take it easy right after I'm done this morning. Uh, get a little rest this week and hopefully, hopefully let my heart heal up. But this morning, brothers and sisters, I'm very excited because we're going to be getting a new, beginning a new series through the book of 1 John. A new series through the book of 1 John, and the series as a whole is entitled The True Christian Life. The True Christian Life. And, and you know this, but the Lord is good and He is sovereign because I had been praying uh, about preaching through 1 John for quite some time, had been wrestling through it. 
Uh, and the Lord, honestly, He just confirmed in me, in light of some things that have been going on in our country, that this is exactly where we need to be in the book of 1 John. And the reason for that, and, and I believe you'll see it as, as we work through this, is that there are some incredible parallels between what we are seeing now in our world and even in the church today. You know, by those who claim the name of Christ, there is a parallel between what we see and what the church was going through, which prompted John to write 1 John in the first place. You know, right now, when you turn on your news or you flip through social media or wherever it is you get information, I don't know if you've thought of it exactly like this, but everywhere you look, you are, you are being bombarded with truth claims. Claims that people say, are true, things that people say are not true, and, and we expect that. But, but what's interesting is the same thing is happening in the church. There are people who claim the name of, of Jesus and who are making claims and making truth claims. I'm not speaking to whether they're valid or not, but they're, they're making those claims. And so as believers, we've got to kind of sift through it. And what we're, what we're seeing is a scary thing happening. Specifically when truth claims are coming out of the church. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'll, I'll share it with you. And we can, if you don't know, we can process through it maybe later, some other time. But the church in America is very fractured right now. It is very fractured right now. Now, I'm not concerned in the sense of I think the church is going to crumble because we praise the, uh, God for the fact that He sits on His throne and His church, His bride will endure. There is no question about that. But I want you to hear me very clearly. The church that we may think will endure might not be the church that actually endures. There's a lot that's coming out. I mean, you all probably watched some of the videos of the Capitol riots. I wanted to address that. I was out last week, so didn't get the opportunity. And so it'll come up some in this sermon. But there were truth claims that were taking place during that. There, There were people carrying Jesus save signs as they stormed the Capitol and murdered police officers. People were killed over truth claims in that moment. And it's not just the world because those truth claims are in our church, they're coming out of our church, and they are fracturing our church. The incredible thing is that the exact same thing was happening when John was writing this letter in 1 John. And so 1 John is indeed a, a, a fascinating a fascinating book of the Bible. And one of the reasons I love it, one of the things I think it's so, that's so interesting about it is that it reads a little different from some of the other epistles that we have in Scripture. More specifically, Paul's epistles. And here's what I mean by that. Because at times, as Paul is writing, and you all know this, Paul is addressing truth claims coming out of the church. But he always addresses them in a very particular manner. So take Galatians, for example. We did a study through the book of Galatians a little while back. You might remember that. But, but when Paul was writing to the, the churches in Galatia, what he was dealing with was Judaizers who, have come in, who had come into the church and were basically making the claim, the reason you're suffering, the reason you're going through hardship, the reason that you're enduring persecution is because you're not actually united to God like you think you are. Because if you want to be united with God, you have to keep the Jewish law. You have to follow, have to follow uh, uh, the Old Testament religious rites and, and all of those things. And so when Paul addresses this, you might remember this, he addresses it from primarily a theological perspective. I mean, do you remember Galatians? He deals with covenants and with Abraham and with faith. I mean, he is working through, in some sense, a theological treatise of why these arguments aren't valid, and he's encouraging the believers to stand firm. But when John writes in 1 John, he comes at it from a very different perspective. 
You see, he's, he's dealing with truth claims. He is. But, but John, in 1 John, combats the false teaching, and we'll address what those false teachings were in just a minute, but he comes at it from a different perspective. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that John is not being theological, because he is absolutely being theological. But that's not his primary objective. You see, his arguments aren't based primarily on theology. His arguments are going to be based on the Christian life lived out. That's a very different perspective from how Paul comes at it. Because Paul is concerned with getting the doctrine right. And John's concerned with that too. But John, or but, but John doesn't go straight after the doctrine. What John does is he deals with how people live in light of the truth of the gospel. He's writing from a more practical standpoint. Now here's why that's very important. And, and I'll come back to this in a few weeks. We're going to come to some passages of Scripture which taken as theological statements would be pretty discouraging for us as believers, right? Anyone who goes on sinning is in darkness. Well, we all go on sinning as believers. Does that mean we're actually in darkness? We're not united with Christ? What we have to remember is that Paul is not, or John is not uh, trying to, you're going to have to bear with me. I'm going to say Paul a lot because we've preached a lot of Paul stuff, but, but John he, he's not necessarily trying to give you this theological treatise. He's just trying to flesh out the practical outworking of the Christian life. So in essence, John is approaching this book remembering what Jesus said in Matthew seven fifteen through 20. When he says, be on guard against false prophets who will come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are, rav- are ravaging wolves. And he says this, Jesus says in Matthew 7, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says it again, Jesus says it again, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. And so what John is going to deal with throughout this book is the fruit of a Christian life. And in some sense, what he's doing is saying, you can validate the claims of these people as you examine whether or not they live their life. Because if they make claims about God, but then they live in a way that is counter to God, their words are disqualified by how they live their life. But the reason that this is a helpful approach is that not only does it spur believers on to examine those they are hearing, it simultaneously encourages the believer to examine his or her own life. And I want you to hear me. This is very important. Ultimately, John's aim is not to confront the false teaching. Yes, he will. We'll see it here in the introduction. He's going to address the issues in the section that we just read. But his primary goal is not to confront the false teachers. His primary goal is to make sure that true believers live holy lives in the midst of people proclaiming false truth. His primary goal is that believers would live holy lives in the midst of people proclaiming false ideas. And we see this laid out by John as the chief aim of the book. 1 John 1, 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 1 John 5.13 I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John is primarily focused on encouraging the saints to stand firm, not only in doctrine, but in how they live in the midst of a world where false claims are being perpetuated all around them. John Stott sums this up well when he says this about 1 John. He says that his first letter is not a theological treatise. It is not a theological treatise written in the academic piece of a library, but it is a track for the times called forth by a particular and urgent situation in the church. And this situation concerns the insidious, insidious propaganda of certain false teachers. And he goes on, he says, I am, he quotes John, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And John Stott goes on and he makes the argument that his chief aim is to encourage the believers to stand firm in the midst of falsehood. John wants to see the believers live faithful lives grounded in truth. He wants them to live the true Christian life. And he says then his joy will be complete. Now here's why this is so applicable to us this morning. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a few moments, but as we mentioned, currently there are plenty of people in our country and in the church claiming to do things under the banner of Jesus Christ. We have heard men and women from pulpits declare that Donald Trump is God's anointed one. We have heard claims that to be a true Christian means you have to be a patriot first. Again, we can call it what it is. We saw the Jesus save signs at an insurrection at the Capitol. And the reason that, that John's writing is so applicable to us is because, brothers and sisters, there is a real temptation. If you're taking notes, this is a good one to write down. There is a real temptation to focus more on correcting others' lies than living the true Christian life. There is a real temptation for faithful believers to focus more on correcting others' lies than living the true Christian life. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that those are polar opposites because as we live the true Christian life, we will correct falsehoods. It's part of what we do, but we have to make sure that we don't see our chief aim as being correcting the lies of, of, of the enemy and even people we are hearing and neglecting to live the true Christian life. Let me put it in another way, as plain as I can. The true Christian life is not lived on Facebook by correcting people's stupid thoughts. That's not the pinnacle of the true Christian life. Have I done it? Yes. But that is not the pinnacle of the true Christian life. And in moments of chaos, when we are hearing so many things, there is a way for even, even true believers, righteous saints, to be distracted by dealing with all the lies and failing to walk holy and humbly before your God. So I believe this series will be helpful. I pray that it will be encouraging. I pray that it will shape us to look more like Jesus as we seek to live this true Christian life. And I'm going to be honest with you about this morning. This, this, this sermon is going to be a little thick. This is an introductory sermon. 
We're going to have to deal with a little bit of background. We're going to have to lay a theological foundation. So, so I'm aware that this is going to be kind of a thick opening, and, and I'm going to try as best as I can as I communicate these truths to bring some application into it. Um, but the remainder of the book is going to be extremely applicable. It's dealing with living the Christian life, the true Christian life. So, so we're going to get into the thick of it here for just a few moments this morning to set the stage for the weeks and the couple months to come. So let me do a little bit of background for, uh, work for you and set the scene a bit. So John is writing this, and, I, and I'll just acknowledge this. I know that in the, kind of the scholarly world, there are a lot of people who disagree that the writer of this book is the Apostle John. I do believe that it is the Apostle John. I have my reasons for that. If you really want to know him, come talk to me, text me after the sermon. I'll share with you the reason that I think that it's John. doesn't really matter for this, but I believe that this is the Apostle John, so I'm going to keep referring to him as John. But, but John is writing to a group of churches, so it's not one church, it's a group of churches who are, and I don't say this figuratively, they are literally being torn apart by false ideas. They are splitting apart because of false claims being made in the church. And again, and that, that should just for a moment kind of a point of application to some degree that should highlight the danger of allowing falsehoods to stay in the church. I'm not saying we don't want to address falsehoods because we do, because they will create divisions in the church. And, and that's what we're seeing in America right now. We are seeing the church divided over lies and truth. But, but for these group of churches, these ideas, these false ideas centered around one question. One question. Who is Jesus? That's the question that they were seeking to answer. And the answer that people were coming up with to that question was causing extreme divisions in the church. And so there were people in the church who obviously believed believe that Jesus was who he said he was, the true Messiah, Son of God. But there were two other prominent views that were coming about in the churches that were causing them to rip apart. So here's the first, the first view. There were some who were denying that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and what we mean by that, they didn't exist that, that, that Jesus lived. They knew that he lived. I mean, this is close enough to the time of Jesus' life that there were people in the church who would have seen Jesus, just like John testifies that he saw Jesus. So they knew that this guy existed, but they denied that he was the Messiah. Ultimately, they were denying that Jesus was God. Again, they knew, they knew he existed. They had no question about that. They simply denied that this Jesus of Nazareth was God in flesh. But there was a second group of people. So while that argument's going on and people are saying, we believe he lived. I don't know what they thought he was. Maybe he was a good moral teacher. Then he said, but he wasn't God in flesh. That's, that's insane, they said. There's no way that that could happen. There was on the other side another group of people who were honestly denying the exact opposite. They denied the incarnation. And what I mean by that is that they believed that, yes, Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Yes, Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah that was promised. He was God, but they denied that he was human. They, they thought that maybe it was just a form he took, but that Jesus wasn't truly human. And so there are people in the church, there are individuals in these churches that are teaching these false ideas. And as a result, as one commentator notes, a major split in the first century church was taking place. And so John is doing what a faithful brother, a faithful apostle is supposed to do. He's writing to encourage genuine believers to stand fast and more importantly, to live 
faithful lives. Yes, he will address the falsehoods, but only in so much as they are affecting how true Christians are living. And so in verses 1 through 4, you have John's introductory remarks. He's setting the stage for the rest of the book. And in these four verses, he basically lays the foundation on which he is going to build the rest of the letter. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, there are three foundational realities that John lays out that are essential for us to grasp if we are going to faithfully live the true Christian life. So again, there are three foundational realities that John lays out that are essential for us if we are going to faithfully, if we're going to grasp, that we have to grasp if we're going to faithfully live the true Christian life. So here's the first reality. In a good Baptist sermon, we'll call them three points, but I'm going to call them three realities, okay? Here's the first. Truth exists. The first reality, the first foundational truth that John lays out before he even addresses how they are to live is that truth exists. Look again at the very beginning of verse 1. He says, what was from the beginning? What was from the beginning? Now, I'll give you a freebie here. This is kind of a side note. To me, this is an indication that the Apostle John wrote the letter because it begins very similar to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in both the beginning of John and 1 John, Jesus is identified as the Word. You see it there at the end of verse 1 of 1 John 1. What was from the beginning, what we have seen and heard, or what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. Logos, the same word that's used in John 1, it's used in 1 John 1. So I think that's somewhat of an indication that this is the same guy because he's following some of the same patterns of writing. But anyway... Notice these first few words, what was from the beginning. And see, often we move quickly past those words, but by John making that statement that what was from the beginning, within these words, John is making an incredible claim that not only does truth exist, but truth is objective. I know it's going to be thick, but let me explain. What John wants them to grasp is that there is absolute truth. There is something that is true that is not grounded in cultural tides. It is not grounded in popular thought. It is not grounded in a constitution. It is not grounded in a world leader. It is not grounded in anyone's feelings. It is not grounded in what can be proved by human reason or logic. Truth has been established from the beginning. And again, as it says in 1 John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So truth is grounded in the very character and nature of God. Because in 1 John, he says what was from the beginning. And in John 1, we learn that Jesus is what was from the beginning. And so Jesus is truth. And we know this to be true because as Jesus lived in this world, he grounds truth in himself as well. Do you remember John 14, 6? Jesus told him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is absolute truth. There is real truth that exists in this world, and it is not dependent on us. And there are three reasons why this is so important. Why it was important for them to be reminded of and why it's important for us to be reminded of. 
So stick with me here. Here's the first reason why this reality that truth exists is important to us. Because the idea of absolute truth stands opposed to how people understand truth today. This idea of absolute truth stands opposed to how people understand truth today. You've heard me say this before. We live in a postmodern society. Though some may not say it like this, what that basically means is that we live in a society where the prevalent idea of the day is that truth is relative. Truth is subjective. People will talk about your truths and my truths. People will say that what is true for you is great and what is true for me is great. We live in a world where this idea of truth, it just depends on the person. It's relative. It's not fixed. Truth changes based off a person. It's fluid. The problem is the Bible does not understand truth that way. Truth is absolute. It is grounded in something. So you can't just spout stuff off and say it's true. It doesn't work that way. But building off of this, the second reason it's so important that John makes this claim, he reminds people that truth exists, is because absolute truth means there is a source we can look to and under to order to understand what is right and good and true. Absolute truth means there is a source we can look to in order to understand what is right and good and true. And as John says here, that source is from the beginning. That source is God himself. So what John wants them to know, and this is very important, is that when someone makes a truth claim, specifically about God, so let me bring it into our current context. When someone makes a claim that to be a Christian means you have to be a patriot first. When someone makes a claim that Trump is the anointed one from God, there is an objective source we go to to see whether or not that truth claim is real. They have to be able to support that claim with God, with His Word, with His character, with His nature, with what He has revealed and said and declared to be true. I've spent a lot of time studying the Scripture, not as many as some, but probably more than some. But one thing I can tell you in that all of my study, I have yet to see the claim that to be a Christian means you have to be a patriot first. I have yet to see the claim that God prefers democracy over socialism. I'm not saying I'm a socialist. I like democracy. I'm just saying. Where did this idea that one system of government is inherently evil and another one is inherently good? It's not in here. You have to be able to support the claim with Scripture that, God, that Trump is God's anointed one. I've read a lot about God's anointed one. We've preached a lot about God's anointed one. We've looked at Isaiah. We've seen things like that. It ain't Trump. There have been a lot of claims. There were a lot of claims as John was writing this. And what John wants them to remember is that absolute truth means there is a source we can look to in order to understand what is right and good and true. But the third reason this is so important, this idea that truth exists, is because truth, the truth that exists, real truth, genuine truth, truth grounded in the character and nature of God, this truth leads to freedom. Truth leads to freedom. You remember John 8, 32? 
Jesus declares, you will know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And we have to remember that Jesus also said that he is the way and the truth and the life. And apart from him, we can't know God. And so what Jesus is saying, what what Scripture points us to is that Jesus is truth and with Jesus there is freedom. And we we can't forget why we need freedom. Because apart from Jesus, we are slaves to our sin. We are slaves to our passions. We are slaves to Satan who is the great deceiver and liar. And we will experience the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. So we need freedom. And if truth is relative, there is no freedom. If Jesus is not what he says he is, and it is subject to what you think, then we are still trapped in our sins and deserving of the eternal wrath of God. And so John is reminding the people that those who are making these claims, if they are false, they are still slaves, they are still under the wrath of God, and he is warning them to cling to the truth, because with the truth there is freedom. In essence... John is reminding them of the gospel. The truth has set them free, and that truth is Jesus, fully God and fully man. He is reminding them as he writes this that, listen, it is good news that truth exists because because truth exists, we can be made right with God because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because he is God in flesh, because he is the Messiah, and he is wrapped in humanity because he showed up and existed in this world. He is a sufficient sacrifice to pay for the sins of all of us. He is a sufficient sacrifice to take the wrath of God upon himself so that we can be made right through what Jesus does on the cross. The, the, the fact that truth exists has gospel implications. And we have to remember that because there are people who need the truth of the gospel all around us. They need to have their eyes opened and it won't happen apart from the gospel. So as John lays out this foundation, he reminds them first and foremost that truth exists. But here's the second foundational reality that he lays out, still speaking of truth. Not only does truth exist, but I want you to catch this one. Truth is experienced. Truth is experienced. Another way that you could say this, and I know I'm going to have to do some work unpacking it because this has been taken a couple different ways, so let me at least get through my explanation and then you could tell me if I'm a heretic later. Another way that we could say this is that truth is validated through experience. It is validated through experience. I want to be clear. Truth is not determined by your experience. But truth, this absolute truth, is validated through experience. Look at the rest of verse 1 into verse 2. So he starts what was from the beginning, and then he says this, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you that the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And what John is testifying to is the fact that not only is there truth, but he is saying not only do I believe there's absolute truth, but I have encountered and experienced that truth. He says we we heard truth when we listened to Jesus. We have seen truth when we looked at his flesh. We have touched 
truth with our hands. And he is declaring that he has experienced this truth. And John writes this to them. He reminds them of this for a couple reasons. The first one is, is a practical reason. It's because John's reminding him that, hey, just remember who I am who's writing to you. I'm not just some random dude. Like, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you remember, one of the requirements to be an apostle was that you, would, you had to have seen Jesus with your own eyes. You would have had to see him. That's, I think I've mentioned this before. That's what makes the story of, of Paul so incredible when he sees Jesus on the road to Damascus and goes blind. Because if he wouldn't have seen Jesus, he couldn't have been an apostle. So, so John's saying, listen, I'm not some random dude who's writing to you about this stuff. I have seen Jesus personally. I know him intimately. I have walked with him for years. I have experienced the word made flesh. I have encountered the living truth that has been from the beginning. And so John, in some sense, is just kind of establishing his credentials right here. But the second reason that he reminds them of this, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, is because John wants to remind them that when we experience truth, It changes everything. It changes how we understand the world. It changes how we live. It changes our purpose. We'll come back to that, but but John is laying this foundational truth that, that truth, genuine truth, is experienced. And the amazing thing about this foundational reality is that it's not only true for John as an apostle, it's true for us as well here today. We who are in Christ Jesus ought to be able to testify that we have experienced truth. Not just that we know truth, but that we have experienced truth. Now you might be thinking, hold on, Michael. I can't say that I have seen Jesus with my own eyes. I can't say that I have heard his audible voice like John did. I can't say that I've touched his physical body. Well, you're right. I can't say that either. I'm not an apostle. But it doesn't mean that we haven't experienced truth. Because the amazing thing is that we can make the claim that we have experienced truth even though we can't say that we've seen and touched like John because of what's recorded in John 16, 13. And in John 16, 13, Jesus teaches this, that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. The Spirit of God, which indwells us as believers, allows us to experience truth. The Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. The Spirit testifies to us that Jesus is truth. You know, if we can be honest for a moment... Again, I'm trying to get some practicalities in here. If we can be honest for a moment about our Christian walk, I think it'll be safe to say that many of us, if we have not already, at some point will go through seasons where we doubt. I mean, it can't be just me. In full transparency, like I have asked the question in my walk of faith before, like what if, what if this is wrong? Like what if I am this crazy fanatic dude that believes these things because it makes me feel better, but it really just is, it's not real. I, I, your pastor, I've asked the question, does God really exist? Did, really, did Jesus really do what he said he did and claim and do what he claimed to do? I'll give you one that I, I was hung up on for a long season in my life. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? 
Many of us will go through seasons of doubt. Some of you might be sitting here right now in the middle of a season of doubt. But what I want to encourage you with, the reason this truth is so prevalent is because many of us will seek evidence as to whether or not the claims of Christianity are valid. But what I want to encourage you to do is to remember that the greatest evidence you have is the spirit that has worked in you. The spirit that has changed you and shaped you and testified to you of what is true and right. You know, this week I was sharing with our brother Corey just some of kind of where I was going with this in First John. And if y'all haven't gotten a chance to spend some time talking with Corey, I recommend you do that because Corey's one of the smartest dudes I know. Uh, so sometimes I go and like try to tell him about what I'm preaching because I'm hope that he's going to give me some insights. And he did. He gave me some insights. So I'm going to at least give him a shout out for it. But when I was kind of processing through this idea of truth that we see in, in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, you know, Corey, Corey just kind of paused and he asked a question. And it was a fascinating question. He said, you know, Michael, have you ever thought about how it is that the farmer out in the field, 13th, 14th, 15th century, how it is that they were Christians, how it is that they believed these truths about the gospel, and he made the claim, and, and I hadn't thought about it. He said, because Corey was saying, because you know that it wasn't until enlightenment in like the 18th and 19th century where Christians started looking for historical evidence to base their faith on. Nobody based their faith on historical evidence. What did they base it on? How did the farmer in the field in the middle of the 13th century know and believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? How, how did the African in the plains of Africa know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? How, how did the, the slaves in the antebellum south who had no access to historical evidence believe and trust in the depths of their being that Jesus Christ was the Son of the living God because the Spirit was the greatest testimony to the reality that Jesus is God? The Spirit screams to hearts and souls and minds that He is what He says He is. He has done what He has said He has done. And you are safe in His arms. The Spirit is your greatest weapon against doubt. I'm not saying don't look at historical evidence. I love historical evidence. Apologetics is one of my favorite things. I love the defense of the faith. But the reality is no, no well-crafted argument, no wordsmith will ever convince somebody of the truth that Jesus claims only the Spirit can do that. And no historical evidence will remove your doubt, Christian. The Spirit can do that. You might be doubting whether you're indwelled by him. Well, why don't you cry out to him and see if God doesn't do what he's promised to do? The Spirit allows us to know and experience truth. So that should also be a comfort to us as we engage the lost world around us. Because let me remind you, go back to our noble Facebook battling. Amen? No well-crafted argument will convince someone that a lie is a lie. I'm not saying we don't say it. I'm not saying we don't speak truth because we know the means the Spirit uses is the truth proclaimed by saints. But don't be discouraged when your argument doesn't convince someone. But plead that the Spirit would intervene. Don't be discouraged when you faithfully proclaim the gospel and someone does not respond because it is not based on your argument. Only the Spirit can allow a person to experience truth so as john lays out these 
foundational realities for living a true Christian life. He highlights that truth exists. He highlights that truth is experienced. And finally, point number three, the found, not point, foundational reality number three, truth shapes how we live. So truth exists. Truth is experienced. And finally, John wants to lay this foundational truth, and it is this truth that he will build on for the remainder of the letter, that truth shapes how we live. Look again at verse 3. He says, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. Pay attention to that, declare to you. And he says, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. To some degree, everything that John has said up until this point has been building to this verse. Even in the original language, everything that has been said, there are relative clauses pointing in the original language to what we have translated as three words in the English translation. We also declare. Everything that he has said, the the fact that there is truth, that truth exists, that truth can be experienced, that I've experienced truth, that I have a testimony that I can proclaim to you, it's all building to these words we also declare. Everything's building to this. And so in other words, the reason that John declares that truth exists, the reason he declares that truth is experienced is because he wants them to know that this truth has shaped his life and his ministry and his purpose and his calling. This is the truth he declares and believes. This is the truth that dictates how he lives his life. And what's interesting, you might have noticed that even in these first few verses, he already starts to kind of throw some jabs at these these theological arguments that are being raised by these people who don't believe. Because notice that he references the Word of God. So bringing us back to John 1 in the sense of that the Word was with God and the Word was God. So he's making a claim that Jesus was God. But he's also making a claim that we have seen Him, we have touched Him, we have known Him. He's not just God putting on, you know, like this visual effect. No, we touched Him, we felt the skin we know he's a man that this Jesus is God and man his declaration is that the word God became flesh and through his life provided a means of eternal life because John knows this truth exists John has experienced it he saw the grace of God made known through his son Jesus and tasted the mercy and freedom provided by God and when he tasted when he saw everything changed John is saying, and so in light of that, I will now live a life to make much of that grace. I will declare to you the truth that I have seen because nothing else matters. And the rest of the book is going to be John fleshing this out. What it looks like to live a life faithful to the truth that exists and that we have experienced. What it looks like to live a life that is faithful to Jesus. What it looks like to live the true Christian life. Look at the end of verses 3 and 4, he says. So that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John wants them to live faithful lives. And for that to happen, he knows that first and foremost, these lives have to be grounded in the truth. Now I'm going to wrap this up. Again, I know we were laying a foundation. We're going to work through some of these practicalities over the next few weeks, but I want you to hear me very clearly because Paul is, or John is building to this. 
part of what John wants them to see is that it's not enough to simply say that we know truth. Hear me, believer. It is not enough for you to simply say that you know truth. It's not enough for you to testify that you have experienced the truth. Because when those things happen, and this is what John is building to, when, when you know the truth and when you have truly experienced the truth, it will begin to change everything about you. It has to. Or it will never honor Jesus. It will never honor Jesus. And I want you to hear that as well, brothers and sisters. I need to hear that as well, that it is not enough for us to know the, the, the truth claims in Scripture. It's not enough for us to be able to mentally assent to them, to argue theology, to map out what we believe. It's good. I, I want you to know theology. I want you to know God. I want you to believe high and lofty truths about Him. But we don't rest there. I want you to experience those truths. I want the Spirit to testify about how amazing God is and what He's done. But it's not enough to stop there either. When we experience truth, when we believe truth, if we truly believe it and if we truly experience it, it has to shape how we live. It has to change how we interact in a world that is lost and dying. It has to change how we respond when we hear falsehoods declared on, on social media and in churches and from pulpits. And the thing that scares me about the church in general, I'm not necessarily talking about new breed. I'm not monitoring everything you do. I don't know where you are, but maybe it is you. What, what scares me is that the response to a lot of what's going on in the world from the church looks exactly like the world. Exactly like the world. But if truth exists and if we have experience, it has to change how we live. It has to or else perhaps we've not really experienced it, and perhaps we don't really know it. First Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 9 reminds us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Listen, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. I'm just going to be frank with you. America doesn't need more Christians telling everyone the insurrection was wrong. The world needs more Christians proclaiming the one who has brought you out of darkness into marvelous light. Aaliyah shared with me as I was processing this point. I relied heavily on other people for this sermon, so thanks, fam. Aaliyah reminded me of a study that she had recently read. It was from kids who were like in college and a little bit beyond who had walked away from their faith. Grew up in Christian homes who had walked away from their faith. And there was one, they, they all kind of, from what I understand, they all kind of said similar things. Not that they hated faith, not that they, you know, thought it was pointless. But there was one person who, in asking kind of why you walked away, their response was that they respected their, their parents' faith, but not their marriage. That's such a, such a horrible thing to hear. Because the reality of it is, is that the gospel has to be more than just a faith we say we believe. It has to be fleshed out in how we live in every sphere of our life. How we live in our marriages, how we, how we shepherd our children, how we interact with our friends, how we date, how we, how we work, how we... How we how faithful we are as students, 
The gospel has to change all of that because it's more than just lofty ideas. It's more than a religious feeling. It is a truth that changes everything. And so my prayer as we walk throughout this series is that as we begin to examine what the true Christian life looks like, that we would be spurred on, that, we would, that the Holy Spirit would give us grace to see areas where God has allowed us to flourish and the Holy Spirit would convict us of areas where we need to grow. The goal isn't to try to convince anyone they're not a Christian because they're doing it wrong. The goal is to say, because you are a Christian, walk this out because you can through the Spirit's power. You can be faithful as the Spirit works in you to make you look more like Jesus. I am excited for the weeks to come, and I look forward to diving into what it looks like to live this true Christian life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of John, who was willing to to write to brothers and sisters who he saw being bombarded with error and with falsehoods as they lived in this world that is plagued with sin. I thank you for the lessons he teaches us as he encourages us, yes, to know truth, to believe truth, but more significantly in his letter, to walk out this truth. As we pray so frequently, to live lives worthy of the gospel that we say we believe. So God, I pray that you would even now be preparing our hearts and our minds for what you have in store for us over the weeks to come as we consider, as we examine what it looks like to live this true Christian life. Help us to be faithful for your fame and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.